This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. There's a story about the history of technology I've become very interested in recently that you get by triangulating authors like economist Robert Gordon, historian Robert Brenner, and my doctoral advisor, historian David Hounschel, among others. The story is that the two most fundamental technological changes in the past 250 years is first, the bundle of technologies and techniques that undergird mass production. And second, the bundle of transportation, communications, and logistics technologies that enabled globalization. Taken together, these two changes have created both economic growth and improvements in quality of life. Because humans can now make things very cheap, more people on the planet are wealthier in a material sense than people were, say, 100 years ago. There are big costs, of course, too, including environmental degradation. But from another perspective, there's a chance that these changes were a kind of one-time event. The Industrial Revolution began in England before taking off in Europe and the United States. Later, in the post-World War II period, the so-called four Asian tigers, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, and Japan, saw periods of intense economic growth, primarily, though not exclusively, rooted in manufacturing for rich nations. Still later, China went through this similar but even more dramatic manufacturing-driven growth, becoming what some called the workshop of the world. But will the process of manufacturing-driven change, which depends highly on shipping and logistics, continue to be an engine of growth for other poor nations? Many people are skeptical. The historian Robert Brenner argues, for instance, that we have entered a state of overproduction, where the globe's manufacturing capacity often outpaces demand, leading to all kinds of economic problems, including low wages. And ask yourself, 
Do we currently see any nations in, say, Latin America or Africa rising to displace China as the workshop of the world? We do not. Regardless of how the future of manufacturing plays out, it's important that we understand how and why these fundamental changes in global history took place. I've been very impressed by the work of this episode's guest, Patrick Chung, an assistant professor of history at the University of Maryland. Patrick examines the rise of shipping and manufacturing in South Korea, and he finds a fascinating interplay between the U.S. Department of Defense, which plays a crucial role in this story, and local South Korean actors. I find his work on this topic, particularly when it comes to the role of large state powers in economic growth, to be really insightful. I hope you enjoy this interview. I know I enjoyed doing it very much. Get excited. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm uh, really looking forward to our conversation. You know, instead of diving uh, directly into your essays, I thought it might be helpful to give listeners a sense of the larger project you're working on. So could you tell us a bit about building global capitalism? Yeah, so my larger book project looks at the role of the U.S. military in the global economy. And it does so by examining uh, sort of South Korea, both as a site for the development of global capitalism as sort of this exemplary case study. I think a lot of people see and think about South Korea today as this really high tech exporter of technologies and increasingly pop culture, which I find to be quite amazing given growing up how being Korean wasn't necessarily the coolest thing, but now with bands like BTS, uh, it is very much in vogue. So they think about South Korea in those terms. However, after World War II, South Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. Hmm. So my project initially began with that sort of problem. How was it that South Korea was able to transform itself uh, when there are so many other examples of Uh, sort of decolonizing nations, not quite achieving the same level of economic development um, and sort of technological sort of advancement. Um, And over the course of my research, the U.S. military just showed up everywhere. I like went into the project thinking that I would look at records of mostly, you know, policymakers, potentially business people, uh, but actually it was military officials and some of them many of whom I've never heard of before, like engineers and sort of the middle management of U.S. military operations in South Korea. So uh, over the course of the project, I've really sort of developed this argument uh, that the U.S. military, particularly through its relationships with South Korean businesses and patronage of South Korean sort of research, development, production, distribution networks, really played a central role and not only sort of South Korea's emergence, uh, but I hope to make this argument in the larger book project that's sort of part of a larger phenomenon where the U.S. military played this essential role of integrating uh, economies mm. around the world during the Cold War. Yeah. 
I mean, South Korea is known as, you know, what used to be called the Asian Tigers, this set of Asian uh, nations that kind of their economies grew very quickly in the post-World War II period. Um, and your faculty page says that, you know, your, your project, you traces the impact of the U.S. military on the miraculous, in, in quotation marks, uh, growth of a South Korean economy. And miracle is a word you hear thrown around or like these these Asian tiger, so-called Asian tiger nations like all the time. So is one of your findings that maybe this growth was not so miraculous or, you know, that it wasn't a miracle in the end? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, I have two thoughts. Uh, first, initially, it was in square quotes because I was interested not in particularly putting forth another narrative about South Korea being this sort of exemplary case and sort of mm -hmm. a success story uh, unambiguously that I think a lot of uh, sort of literature about sort of U.S. developmental assistance and nation building efforts, particularly yeah. from the U.S. government sort of purports South Korea as, in a lot of ways, South Korea's economic development uh, went along went or along with it came a lot of negative consequences, yeah. not only sort of for people in South Korea, but around the world, right? So sort yep. of, uh, I was most interested in some of the labor issues that surrounded mm -hmm. South Korea's economic growth, sort of the exportation of South Korean products went hand in hand with the exploitation of workers in South Korea, yeah. right? So I think sort of exploring some of the dark sides of South Korea's economic growth was one of the reasons for putting miraculous in square quotes. Yeah. And another one is sort of talking, I think this term sort of like Watergate is often bandied about in different contexts, right? Sort of uh, to describe rapid economic growth, particularly that which occurred during the Cold War. So I think one of the first instances was actually talking about Germany immediately yeah. after World War II. And sort of uh, what's interesting is a lot of the places where this quote unquote miraculous economic growth occurred, the US military was actually yeah. a big part of in terms of yeah. its sort of presence there. So Germany, Japan, South Korea, I think a lot of these different nations that became, I think, sort of the leading industrial economies and in sort of the capitalist free world um, did so partially because of the U.S. military's presence and sort of, I would argue, the U.S. military's uh, spending and defense dollars. Uh, and sort of those are sort of, I think, the two aspects of the story that I really want to highlight in sort of saying miraculous growth of South Korea. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So one thing I like to do in this podcast is kind of give listeners a, a sense of uh, of scholars as human beings. So like, how did, how did you get into this topic? Yeah, I think this is an interesting story because I gave you sort of a small part of the unexpected nature of this project with the military. Um, yeah. But coming into grad school, I was most interested in looking at Asian American history, uh, sort of growing up uh, the son of immigrants, uh, sort of Korean American. I, I really became fascinated by the fact that there was a history of Asian Americans and people were writing about it uh, as I was writing my undergraduate thesis. And I was uh, interested in this idea that 
it was actually Chinese uh, workers who were trying to sneak uh, across the Mexican border during the turn of the 20th century. And that sort of was what my undergrad thesis was about. And I hmm. sort of fully expected to write about that in grad school. Uh, but uh, for very practical reasons, on one hand, I couldn't speak Chinese really well enough to work with sources yeah. or Spanish, which actually made me start to look around for other potential topics. I did speak Korean. And, and like I said, my parents were immigrants to the U.S. And just those two things actually made me naturally gravitate towards South Korea and looking at South Korean history. Um, and then over the course of doing readings for my exams, I got interested in this seemingly parallel, these parallel stories that I didn't see being talked about in a single framework. One is this rapid economic growth that you see in countries throughout East Asia, South Korea being one of them. Um, and the other deindustrialization that was going on in the United States. To me, those stories just sort of on an instinctive level seem like obviously tied together. But yeah. over the course of my research, I really, uh, looked for ways or found that it wasn't as simple. It wasn't a one-to-one -one relationship where uh, I could talk about sort of find sources that talked about, you know, factories moving directly from the United States yeah. to South Korea, for instance, which is what I was looking at. Um, so it was really through kind of those struggles that this story about the U.S. military really came to the forefront in a lot of ways. Uh, over Since completing that research and writing the dissertation, uh, I've been looking at sort of more the kind of interesting everyday uh, ways in which that relationship translates. And, and, and I think it's really appropriate to talk about uh, with you just because I've become really interested in the history of technology, right? I think one of the mm -hmm. things that uh, is really interesting to think about is just sort of not only the flow of products and materials back and forth uh, from the United States to South Korea and abroad, but also the production of these materials, right? I think yeah. that's really became the focus of my research and really uh, is actually what has held my interest, the ways in which the production of materials, which, you know, we think about occurring in sort of a single site, single factory, they sort of take the materials, put together, really becomes dispersed throughout yes. the world, right? And I think that's, right. that's one thing that I've been trying to find ways to articulate to people and sort of using South Korea as this sort of very specific example, but kind of as an important node in this sort of larger diaspora. And, and this is uh, not the right word for it, but diaspora of production, right? So mm -hmm. looking at South Korea as a way to get into these, what are today really sort of global and sort of global network with people and locations uh, and capital involved all around the world. Yeah. Maybe we could transition here to talking about your essay from Korea to Vietnam, which appeared in Radical History. The subtitle is Local Labor, uh, Local Labor, Multinational Capital, and the Evolution of Military Logistics. And I feel like a helpful bit of background for this essay is how historians so far have talked about the history of shipping containers and containerization. So do you want to kind of, can you outline kind of the story of containerization as it as it's kind of existed before you wrote this essay? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I got my introduction, like a lot of people to that scholarship um, from Mark Levinson's The Box, which is a great book that really talks about containerization, I think, from a global perspective, but in a lot of ways, uh, the central players are sort of American, right? He talks about the ways in which uh, sort of Malcolm McLean and a lot of shippers in the United States really helped bring about this globalization of shipping, right? Uh, yeah. The ability to produce products almost anywhere and have them consumed uh, uh, wherever in the world. And I think in some ways the book is great for really mapping out that trajectory and also in a lot of ways highlighting the role and partnership between corporations and the US military in making this a global phenomenon. And I think from there, I, there are different sort of focuses I found uh, that have talked about this story. One of them is the story about labor, right? So containerization, while great for consumers, has actually been devastating for a lot of workers in the various logistical industries, right? So Steve Dorves being the most obvious example, right? So mechanization being a way to lower wages or sort of completely eliminate jobs. So there's this rich labor history, which I actually yeah. uh, found to be, you know, quite interesting and sort of something that I hoped my work could add a little bit of context to, because uh, sort of in contrast to those histories that in, in a lot of ways focus on the United States and sort of Western Europe, uh, many of the major players being from those countries, I wanted the article to look at South Korean players and containerization because yeah. uh, one of the major kind of uh, success stories of the South Korean economy was uh, sort of logistics firms, Hanjin being the company that I talk about in the article. They might be, you might be more familiar with uh, Korean Airlines, uh, which is part or was once a part of sort of that larger Hanjin group, but Hanjin became by the, the late 1990s and the early 2000s, uh, one of the largest container shippers in the world, like one, one of the largest ship shipping companies in the world, right? So, yeah. uh, so through that process and uh, by looking at containerization in Hanjin, I kind of uh, broadly wanted to sort of outline the argument that I, I've been talking to you about uh, throughout this podcast, but also show that uh, how non-Western companies actually were central to this process of containerization. And yeah. what I think uh, I focused on particularly in that article uh, was not only the technology of containerization, but sort of the larger capitalist logic that went yeah. with it, right? So one of the things that uh, I trace from Korea to Vietnam, a little bit about the title, just sort of the evolution of logistical systems between the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Um, one of them uh, that isn't really an evolution is sort of more of a transplantation is the use of sort of race as a way to categorize different workers and sort of uh, on one hand maximize profits, but on the other, uh, I think um, really sort of uh, weaponizes sort of uh, U.S. and Western views of race, right? And, and mm -hmm. what's most interesting for me in this story is it's actually sort of the Koreans uh, Hanjin that's actually taking on a lot of these sort of racialized ideas uh, uh, 
in terms of its using it in its relationships with workers, right? So uh, the story uh, begins during the Korean War where you see the U.S. military as well as uh, U.S. military contractors employ a racialized wage system uh, that puts South Koreans at the bottom, right? And, and it makes sense to a certain extent because there's a large pool of Korean, uh, Korean workers that are displaced by the war and they sort of fit into uh, this U.S. defense effort uh, uh, by sort of doing the menial tasks involved mm -hmm. uh, in logistics, which are actually critical to the war effort, right? So sort of unloading ships that have uh, war material as well as essential goods. Uh, so this system gets employed by Koreans who become contractors uh, during the Vietnam War, right? And there's uh, they employ the same... A differentiated hierarchical system of labor of uh, relations. And I think that I, I think is why I sort of highlighted that literature about uh, sort of the working class and their relationships with containerization. Because yeah. I really think that uh, my work really shows the sort of global nature of this process. Yeah, and so just to spell out the racial logic a bit, which I think you do really well in the article, you know, you for instance, there's Japanese managers, and of course the U.S. has relations with Japan coming out of World War II, and you know has is used to working with them in some degree, and they're given higher wages than the kind of Korean laborers who are doing the grunt work, right? As one example, of the kind of racial logic that plays out there. Yeah, and it, it like reminded me of this sort of uh, quote that's attributed to a prime minister of Japan. It, it describes the Korean War as sort of a miracle sent from the gods, from the heavens. And in a lot of ways it was because Japan being, uh, despite being an enemy of the United States during World War II, was actually uh, emerged as the United States' most important ally throughout the Cold War. And part of the reason for that was the fact that it had the industrial base and sort of the experience and the sort of corporate um, organization that many of the sort of decolonizing countries around the Pacific didn't have, right? So it sort of fit logically into this U.S. world order where it would sort of have key allies help oversee uh, sort of the U.S. Uh, sort of spread of U.S. influence, right? And, and during the Korean War, uh, Japan and Japanese companies became sort of the, the sort of prime contractors in a lot of instances, right? Where they would be overseeing uh, Korean workers doing a, a, a wide range of sort of large projects. And I think in the larger book project, I really show how South Korea became a huge boon, not only for Japan, but also uh, companies from Western Europe. So the former colonizers throughout the world really found opportunities in sort of mm -hmm. the reconstruction of the decolonizing world and sort of that relationship sort of evolves over the course of the Cold War where you have newly emerging, newly developing countries like South Korea sort of enter into this hierarchical system, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's really uh, sort of something that I hope my work adds to this understanding of the East Asian tiger, right? So, so there's yeah. like an outgrowth of this lar larger trajectory, but also sort of the exploitative nature that a lot of this economic development sort of relied upon. Yeah. I thought you really use, effectively used the, the story of, uh, I'm, I might botch this, but Cho Chung Hoon, 
the founder of the Hanjin Corporation. I just thought it was a fascinating story. And, you know, so can you tell me a bit, tell us a bit about Cho and how he got started in this whole project, which eventually becomes this enormous conglomerate, but actually starts out quite small? Yeah, I found him to be like a fascinating way to look at the story because, in a lot of ways, like South Korea, he's held up as this model of why sort of capitalism works, right? So he was a very sort of Horatio Alger, pull himself up by the bootstrap story. He started as a small shipping or sort of trucking company uh, out of Incheon, which is the port city that's uh, west of Seoul. And really he and his company took off moving supplies for the U.S. military during the Korean War and its immediate aftermath, right? And uh, this is a story that uh, is actually very parallel to a much larger well-known corporation, uh, the Hyundai Corporation, Chung Ju-young, uh, like Cho, actually began with a very sort of small mom-and-pop operation. But uh, through this early recognition of the opportunity that the U.S. military and U.S. military contracts provided, was able to transform uh, these very local small companies into gigantic multinational uh, corporations, right? So in the case of Hanjin, uh, sort of initial wartime uh, trucking uh, jobs turned into sort of more long-term uh, logistics contracts with the U.S. military in South Korea. Um, and then uh, during uh, the Vietnam War, one of the sort of key uh, preconditions for South Korea becoming a key, a, a, a sort of the key ally of the United States in the war. Actually, South Korea sent uh, the largest number of troops outside of the United States to fight in Vietnam. One of the key provisions that the South Korean government negotiated with the United States was to provide preferential treatment to South Korean Right? So mm -hmm. that's sort of how Hanjin got its foot in the door. It had this existing relationship with the U.S. military. Thus, it was a logical choice when uh, South Korea began to send troops and sort of logistical uh, support to the U.S. military in Vietnam. It would be selected. And really, it was in Vietnam where Hanjin really began to get the sort of scope of capital and access to advanced technology, specifically uh, container technology, uh, exposure and experience with these technologies to become sort of a worldwide uh, shipping company, right? Yeah. I thought you did also did a really good job in the article kind of showing how exploitative a lot of this work was in South Korea. So can you give uh, listeners a sense of that? I mean, just like how badly were workers being treated in, in many of these cases? Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things that's often pointed out about South Korea uh, is that the workers are sort of the best in the world. It's like really interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, in uh, one of the biographies of Chung Ju Young, who's uh, uh, the founder of Hyundai, uh, there was a quote by a U.S. military official during the 1950s just praising Korean workers, right? So they, they yep. work these really long hours and really sort of have this work ethic that uh, that's, you know, often not seen in the United States anymore. Right. So it's always comparative. Um, 
Um, and in a lot of ways, this was true during the 70s and 80s, uh, South Korean workers worked among the longest hours in the world uh, for comparatively lower wages. Um, but sort of the truth about some of these narratives that are often spun in positive ways of, of this hard work paying off uh, with South Korea taking off and developing was that, you know, they just really didn't have any recourse to uh the demands of management, right? Of South yeah. Korea for most of its history, post-war history was run by a series of military authoritarian dictatorships who sided with uh, often corporations. The corporations often worked hand in hand with uh, the South Korean government uh, to at the expense of the workers, right? So the reason why yeah. South Koreans uh, we're working the longest hours for the lowest pay wasn't this sort of tradition, uh, often sort of attributed to C Confucianism uh, yeah. of hard work, but rather these very material conditions and sort of uh, the heavy handedness of uh, the South Korean government uh, mm -hmm. in enforcing labor relations um, and sort of the reasoning for it uh, that was given was sort of the need to develop the country. Uh, but the fact of the matter was uh, South Koreans were working 10, 12, 13 hour days in, you know, manual labor, right? Uh, yeah. For sort of pennies on the dime, or pennies. Yeah, like five cents an hour, you say, at yeah. one point. Yeah. That's so wild. I think that's that's really sort of pretty. Yeah, I think uh, an important part of the story that often is overlooked. Yeah. Uh, I guess there were there unionization efforts or was that just like stamped out whenever it would pop up? Yeah. And I think the thing about uh, the unions in South Korea is they were very much working with the South Korean state. I think there, yeah. at least in the initial post-World War II period, there was this groundswell of more left wing uh, demands for redistribution um, among the workers, and there were efforts to unionize uh, along non-corporatist unions. But uh, uh, like I said, South Korea, often with the support of the U.S. and the U.S. military, stamped out a lot of the more radical elements within mm -hmm. the South Korean uh, workers' movement. And by the time of the 70s, uh, the sort of largest official unions were, were uh, sort of have relied upon and worked closely with the South Korean state, right? So. Yeah. So is part of your argument that the kind of infrastructure and practices maybe built in South Korea during the time we've been talking about, like the Korean War to the Viet through the Vietnam War, is kind of like was set up and then could be, you know, led to increased economic growth after the war? Like they could then use that capacity for kind of more peaceful uh, economic ends? Is that part of the picture you're painting? Yeah, I think that is a, a good way to put it. I don't know if, if I think I might choose a different word than peaceful, but this yeah, yeah. evolution, I one of the uh, historical developments I really want to trace is how supply lines, and this is sort of a, a, the title for another for a chapter in another book chapter that I published, uh, this evolution from supply lines to supply chains, because I think this need to be able to transport goods around the world in an efficient manner 
uh, is actually something that is, you know, a central concern for the U.S. military yeah. as well as corporations today, right? So in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, the U.S. military's role in at least in establishing a lot of these systems, if not sort of building the actual systems that are employed uh, in later decades, is critical for the emergence of transnational corporations, right? So yeah. the sort of wartime demands, I start with the Korean War, but it actually goes back further, definitely to World War II, where uh, the U.S. military was building out this network, worldwide network of bases. And the infrastructure needed to maintain and connect them, right? And it's a, in a lot of ways, the corporate transnational supply chains that uh, our economy today relies upon really sort of piggybacked off this effort of the U.S. military. At least that's sort of the argument that I'm trying to make in the larger book project. Yeah. I think this is a great uh, point to tack to your other essay, From Ham Radio to Microchips. Um so one one way, as we've just you know kind of discussed, one way to think about what we've been talking about so far is that it's the you know the story of the rise of infrastructure and logistics about how to move things around. But there's also an important story to be told about South Korea about what was being moved out of South Korea eventually um, that played a role in its economic growth. So the the subtitle of the uh, the essay is. Kang Ki Dong, the U.S. military and the rise of global high tech. So maybe we could start with who is Kang Ki Dong and what does his life tell us about these larger issues? Yeah, uh, Kang is another really fascinating individual that I came across when researching um, a potential second project. So this first project that we've been talking about looks at sort of heavy industries as well as infrastructure. Uh, But obviously the other half of it, uh, and I think more well-known half of sort of South Korea, the South Korean economy is a sort of high tech sector. And it was uh, sort of a potential, as a potential second project, I wanted to look at uh, the globalization of South Korean tech companies and Samsung being uh, the most prominent one. So in the course of reading a little bit about Samsung's uh, entry into the semiconductor industry, which uh, was really uh, one of the sort of key components of its business, particularly uh, during uh, the initial takeoff phase during the 80s and 90s, but still today. Uh, I, came, I, I came across this sort of footnote, really, in a lot of uh, different uh, pieces about Samsung, about this uh, company called Korea Semiconductor, and this man, Kang, was mentioned in a few of them. Uh, I didn't see much else written about him, so I, I, I did a little bit of digging and, and found this really fascinating story, uh, like you said, uh, about sort of circulation that occurred uh, between Korea and the United States uh, that enabled uh, high-tech industries to really take root in South Korea. And I thought Kang uh, helped me sort of talk about a lot of these uh, trans-Pacific connections. So Kang actually was the founder of, like I said, Korea Semiconductor. And it was one of the sort of, it was the first firm that was able to produce and design its own sort of uh, advanced semiconductors uh, during the late 1970s. Prior to that point, uh, South Korean companies had been involved in various electronics, but it was mostly uh, in assembling and mass producing uh, sort of consumer facing chips. And what Kang 
brought to uh, the table was the ability to design some of the cutting edge semiconductors uh, that actually were sort of being produced in the United States and Japan at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit disorganized here, but that's who Kang is. And he's sort yeah. of important in, in the history of Samsung because his company was acquired by Samsung as it was entering into uh, the semiconductor industry. And he actually helped provide some of the initial technolo technological expertise needed for Samsung to really uh, emerge as this global power in the industry. Um, so that's sort of how I initially became interested in him. But as I got to digging uh, into his backstory, I sort of found a lot of interesting connections yeah. to my previous research because he was born uh, in Korea during the colonial period. So he was born before uh, Korea became liberated from Japanese colonialism after World War II. Uh, but grow he grew up in various parts of Korea, but mostly in Seoul. But what really caught my attention is he grew up in and around sort of U.S. military presence. It was like a sort of uh, omnipresent part of his and many Koreans' life, particularly when it came to consuming just any goods, right? So yeah. his his uh, memoir has a lot of stories about him rummaging junkyards that had U.S. surplus military electronics. And huh. it's really uh, in one of these junkyards, he, he really begins to sort of understand what technology is uh, or sort of electronics are. Uh, and he sort of develops this fascination with ham radio, yeah. uh, which I found to be fascinating because a lot of the more sort of uh, U.S. focused histories of high tech and Silicon Valley talk about this sort of, you know, for me, kind of like a weird sort of very niche technology, but how central it was yeah. for a lot of the key players in Silicon Valley. So I, I was just like fascinated that this sort of uh, displaced relatively well off for in South Korean terms, but uh, in U.S. terms, very poor uh, individual became introduced to ham radio, the same ham radio being uh, used by uh, in the United States through U.S. military bases. So sort of through yeah. surplus electronics, he gets interested in ham radio. Uh, and then from there, he sort of enters into uh, the most prestigious university uh, at the time and still arguably today in South Korea, Seoul National University. And there he uh, enters the electrical engineering department with the hopes of sort of uh, pursuing his passion for not ham radio necessarily, but communications technology, right? So sort of yeah. uh, what's fascinating there for me too is the electrical engineering department at Seoul National University would not be there without sort of the support of the U.S. military. So following the Korean War, the U.S. military is involved in sort of rebuilding the education system in South Korea, and it prioritized sort of electronics and sort of technical fields that would help uh, South Korea be able to sort of support itself economically, right? So sort of I bet it was very electricity industry focused initially, right? It was probably very power focused. Yeah, and that's something that he noted and also uh, other Korean engineers who sort of went to Seoul National University at the time noted is just power generation was yeah. central for South Korea because South Korea didn't have sort of a robust power infrastructure system. Yeah. Right? So the U.S. in 
sort of its foreign assistance to South Korea prioritized power generation as well as sort of um, other sort of very basic uh, utilities or engineers who could actually service and work for various infrastructures and utilities. Yeah. And for that reason, uh, electroengineering was sort of uh, prioritized by the U.S. military, but not in sort of the sort of cutting edge side uh, yes. that would uh, sort of look at things like uh, semiconductors. And, and it's for this very reason that uh, Kang actually, following graduation, goes to the United States, right? So he's yeah. really sort of fortunate in the timing of his graduation. Just as he graduates, there's sort of this big push uh, in the United States under Eisenhower to beef up science and technology. This is following Sputnik, and there's this sort of fear that the United States is falling behind technologically. What you see sort of on a more practical sense is funding for STEM fields in the United States really blowing up and sort of Kang is able to piggyback off that process. He becomes a grad student um, and he works in one of the earlier sort of semiconductor research labs at Ohio State University. And it's really there that he enters the field and he becomes sort of a leading expert in the production of semiconductors, right? Following OSU, he works for Motorola, which briefly becomes the largest producer of semiconductor devices in the United States. So, I, I mean, what I sort of try and draw out in this article is this global trajectory of technological development that sort of has the U.S. military involved in, in various ways. That's what I really want yeah. to highlight and what I thought Kang was such a great example of because the U.S. military's patronage of high technology, I think, has been talked about a lot and particularly recently in the yeah. literature. Like uh, I think I read uh, uh, Margaret O'Mara's The Code recently and it does yeah. look a really good job sort of, I think, providing- This is a book story. about the history of Silicon Valley. For yeah, people like yeah. And it, yeah. And I, I like a lot of these stories and I think it's really interesting uh, sort of looking at some of the work uh, from the U.S. perspective, but like I did with the, uh, the from Creative Vietnam article, there's sort of an international story to be told. Yeah. I think uh, what's interesting once you sort of look at the South Korean example is how there are so many different sort of linkage points between the U.S. military and various and individuals like Kang would play a big role in the development of the South Korean sort of high-tech sector, right? So from the very indirect by having sort of surplus electronics as well as uh, various technical manuals yeah. being available at junk shops to its patronage of the education system, um, yeah. to sort of, sort of its patronage of foreign students in the United States, right? One thing that I have sort of encountered yeah. in looking at Kang is just how there is a prevalence of sort of key figures in technology or at least the semiconductor industry that enter the United States from countries like South Korea, sort of potential allies in the fight against communism and sort of these grad students who enter the United States and play key yeah. roles in the development of key technologies, right? So in a lot yes. of ways, I focus on Kang, but hopefully his story is actually can sort of resonates with uh, people who are looking at other places and regions of the world. Yeah, no, I think there's it does in all kinds of ways. I mean, just going back to the um, uh, the ham radio thing for a second, it's true that if you look at the history of computers, like there's that textbook, computer, a multi-authored textbook by Martin Campbell Kelly et al. Um, 
you know, ham radio is playing an important part in the computer story in that it's like geeky, mostly white guys playing with these things and then, you know, starting the computer industry eventually. But the other place it, you know, it touched a nerve for me when I was reading uh, your essay is that in uh, David Edgerton's Shock of the Old, in his S in his chapter on maintenance, he has a really fascinating, I think it's might just might just be a paragraph and a footnote. He's drawing on others' research. But it's about how in some instances, I think in both Japan and uh, South Korea, you have industries coming out of maintenance and tinkering of like American imported goods, right? I mean, that this is where's the technical ex wherewithal to innovate, you know, gonna come from. Well, it's going to come initially from people learning how to play with these things that are around suddenly that weren't, you know, created locally, but then they end up in some cases creating whole new industries. So that's kind of fascinating connection there, I thought. Yeah. And sort of that idea, and this is something that I really wasn't familiar with before uh, working on this essay was this notion of tinkering, right? So sort of yeah. that idea of this sort of independence and freedom found through sort of exploration and sort of going yeah. uh, away from the manual, which I find so striking in comparison to sort of the modern day where everything I think is actually sort of that the ability to tinker is increasingly becoming more. Yeah. Difficult. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I think about that when uh, I, I talked to sort of my dad's generation about cars, how they could actually open the hood and like work on, their car in a way that I think more modern cars, you would need to be sort of a computer engineer to, in some ways to work on cars today. So yeah. I think that's that's like, an, that was interesting looking into that. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it's something that I hope to explore a little bit more in my future work. Like I said, I, I'm yeah. a novice, uh, I think, or I'm really just beginning my You're doing fine, Patrick. Yeah, You're doing fine. Technology, <laughs> but I find it so such an interesting yeah. way to sort of just discuss these larger global processes in a way, right? Yeah. So, you know, if we bring together your two essays, I think, you know, in, in the, your larger book project is going to get at this too, but if we bring together these two essays, one's from your kind of early dissertation work and one's from this later stuff, I mean, I re we really have the story of the rise of competitive and expensive electronics and then eventually other things, right? But electronics are like one of the first sectors where international competitions really felt in the United States and Europe, right? Where Asian co companies were just doing terrific and, and continue to do so. You know, I've been struck, I've, you know, we recently were in the process of renovating our basement and decided to get a new television. And I don't want to, I'll start, start sounding like a terrible materialist here if I talk about this TV, but like, you know, we got a new TV. It's made in Asia, unsurprisingly. And it's pretty big by my standards. It's like huge, but it's not huge according to American standards, it's like 55 inches or something like that. Yeah. It was cheap, right? I mean, it was like when we got it, it was like, you know, it was $450 for this is huge television by my standards. And, you know, this is the kind of the way productive capacity has been brought to bear on these kinds of things really has just changed the shape of consumer experience across the globe, really, you know? Yeah. Um, but I also, I wonder, you know, I was recently reading uh, kind of debates between economists about like the environment and degrowth and all these things. Uh, no, it was about, no, I'm sorry. It was about whether 
how much poverty reduction has happened in the last 30 to 40 years across the globe, especially in China and other parts of Asia. And, you know, part of the question and debate is whether we can use South Korea and then later China as a kind of paradigm for growth, because it feels like the story you're telling is a moment or something like that. You know, the post-World War II moment from, you know, like, like let's say 50 to 2010 or something like that is a story of the kind of the, the logistic story you're telling about global shipping. And then the way that global production has changed in the kind of diaspora way you, you mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. But that now we don't, we're not seeing that so much with like Latin America and Africa and other, you know, poor nations in, in Asia, um, which, you know, like Thailand has become very service oriented very quickly for, as an instance of, of an Asian nation. So, I mean, I just wonder how you feel about that. Like, are, is the story you're telling a kind of, you know, and we're historians, so we don't want to predict the future. That's like part of our nature. And I'm totally with you there. I don't do predictions. But I wonder if you feel like the story you're telling is a kind of a story of a period, you know, in human history where something happened. Yeah. And now we're living with the ramifications of it. But it's not necessarily true that it's going to continue happening in the same way, something like that. Yeah, no, that's a great question and sort of a great way to, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, bring together all of the different work I've been doing. I guess one is to preface, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I can make any sort of predictive statements, but... Uh, I think it my the story that I tell is very sort of centered in a moment in history, and I think even though my work spans the entire Cold War period, uh, a lot of the sort of key developments I think and trace happened during the 1950s, right? I think one of the things yeah. that really is critical uh, for my story is the way that following World War II, the United States had this sort of hegemonic role in sort of the global economy, right? You see most of uh, the developed world sort of recovering uh, from combat after World War II and sort of devastated in ways the United States wasn't um, yeah. on one hand and sort of on the other, uh, sort of with the emergence of the Cold War, you see the sort of emergence of the U.S. military as this global player, right? I think these two factors are very unique to that post-World War II moment. And, and, and this sort of goes along with sort of the work you, you do is uh, the key sort of development for a lot of what I'm talking about is the initial sort of standardization that occurs from this process, right? Yes. So having the U.S. military and sort of U.S. industry develop into these dominant uh, players in the global economy during the immediate post-World War II period enables it to standardize uh, various production processes, but also sort of business and sort of yep. uh, distribution consumption processes in ways that on one hand make a global economy possible, uh, but also I think bring about some of the negative consequences that are becoming increasingly apparent today, right? Whether it's totally. yep. from sort of the issues of labor exploitation to sort of what's going on with COVID, right? So mm. I think that is a very unique aspect of my story. Um, I would like to say it's not, I don't think this idea of standardization itself is unique, right? I think there are various uh, times and places where 
sort of hegemonic powers were able to impose their standards uh, on oh, yeah. the large swaths of the world. What I think is relatively unique up until I think uh, the present is the sort of almost global scope of this yeah. uh, process that occurs following World War II, right? One thing that's really notable uh, in, in my initial research about the Korean War was how U.S. military engineers were often complaining about sort of work like paving a road, for instance, in Korea that the Japanese did, right? That didn't quite fit uh, U.S. standards. Like the key, the key factor in roads uh, for U.S. military engineers is whether they were wide enough and strong enough for vehicles, so like uh, Jeeps, to fit in. And some yeah. of the roads that uh, the Japanese built in South Korea, even if they were intact by the time US, U.S. military got there, weren't up to U.S. standards, right? So, they were, they, <laughs> yeah. so the, the, the Japanese were attempting, I think, a lot of sort of empires impose their standards on large spots of the world. Uh, but what is, I think, I would argue relatively unique about that initial post-war period uh, with the United States is how it was able to do so on such a large scale, almost sort of yeah. uh, throughout the entire quote unquote free world. So I think, um, yeah, so I, I think I'll leave it at that. I think it is very unique. A lot of what I talk about occurring in the subsequent decades actually is sort of an outgrowth and sort of uh, consequence of that initial 1950s period where you see yeah. the U.S. able to impose its standards on uh, so much of the world. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And I think you answered a question I have about like why we just always find that, you know, whether we look at Silicon Valley or digital technology, like U.S. military and intelligence are always like just behind the curtain. But, you know, I think you're talking about, you know, the Cold War when the U.S. military is just a huge force on the, on the global scale. Yeah, I had a question, a kind of historical, theoretical, methodological question. I don't know how to to characterize it exactly. But I was just wondering about how you think about, uh, you know, the technical term would be like agency in your story. So on the one hand, I, I, you know, I have some friends who are historians of Korean technology, and I just know, I get a sense from their work that you have like incredible nationalist myths within South Korea about why South Korea is so great and, and mighty. Right. So that's one story we could tell about uh, not not mighty in the military sense, but in the economic sense. Right. Um, and that's one story you could tell about um, one extreme story you could tell about South Korean industry and technology. And then on the other hand, you could have, uh, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, you could have a story where it was all about U.S. military intervention. Right. And so it becomes kind of a a Western hege hegemonic force kind of story that that's what really creates this change. And obviously you don't want to do either one of those, right? I mean, we've, the whole conversations about been about how you don't want to do either one of those, but like, how, you know, I just wonder how you try to strike a balance between those two extremes and how you think about like the, you, you know, the agency of the, U the military actors. And, you know, you talk about all these wonderful low level people, not just like generals. Yeah. versus the agency on the ground in, in Korea by by Koreans? No, that's a great question. And that's something that I definitely uh, can sympathize with. My parents are always just sort of like, you got to buy Korean, you know? It's just sort of like <laughs> there is a nationalistic <laughs> pride uh, when uh, you see sort of like a, like an LG TV or what, what have you. I think one way that I've been thinking about it, and, and 
I don't know if I've quite succeeded in articulating it yet, is to think about the U.S. military sort of as like, I guess the, to use like a techni tech technology uh, uh, terminology, sort of like a platform. That's sort of how I sort yeah. of understood the military is not sort of necessarily a, a U.S. actor per se, because what I found throughout my research is there's a whole range of individuals from the low yeah. level players uh, to the generals in a lot of ways that use the U.S. military, the U.S. military contracting system, which is in a lot of ways I reduced, if I want to reduce down to a very simplistic uh, sort of uh, visual, uh, a visual is sort of like this honeypot. This is one, it's probably the largest single source <laughs> of funding, the U.S. national defense budget that you find throughout the Cold War. And on the planet, actors. yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> on the planet, right? So sort of right. that pot of money is being used by a range of individuals. Yeah. And like what I try and highlight is they're not just in the United States. They're not just Western. And they obviously, depending on who they are, have a different relationship and the level of access to this pot of money. Yeah. However, it's not necessarily always about the U.S. as sort of this abstract nation state. Uh, sort of imperial power imposing sort of its will, uh, but yeah. actually sort of it does have sort of disproportionate control, but not total control yep. of what this money is actually sort of put towards, right? So that's what's so interesting to me about people like uh, Cho or uh, Kang is they are actually sort of as much sort of in control in some senses and interfacing with the same system that you see high level sort of generals and policymakers in the United States doing. There's sort of, there's a, a logic uh, of contracting and procurement that's very abstruse and difficult and opaque for a reason. Uh, but it's a process that many people around the world sort of have access to. And that's why I find, what I find so interesting about this idea of standardization, it's sort of the standards are decided by those in power but once they're established, I think they can be exploited and used by yeah. individuals across the spectrum yeah. of power, geography, and time. So, I mean, I think, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. I'm, like thinking about the U.S. military yeah. sort of uh, as like not just an institution, but just sort of as this kind of nexus whereby various sort of relationships are negotiated. No, I love that. I mean, I think that standards create some rules of the game and then there other rules come from other places. And then there's there's a big question about how the different players play it in terms of style and and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Patrick, thanks so much for doing this. I, I'm really excited by your work, man. I just like, you know, I wish you the best. Keep going. Yeah. You're telling really, really cool and important stories. So thank yeah. you for doing it. Yeah, thanks so much for your question and the opportunity. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, 
a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at BT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.